Be blessed by the hearing of God's word. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart I will endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who, pract- he who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all who do iniquity. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you how it speaks to us, speaks to our hearts, reminds us of how you would have us live for you, for your glory, and for the exaltation of your son, Jesus Christ. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day and age where the concept and practice of a principle called integrity is really an endangered species. The ideals of high moral values and trustworthy character are quickly disappearing. We hear the headlines of all sorts of scandals. We read of biggest uh, business moguls who sell stocks illegally, government officials who are known to be taking kickbacks, and yet nothing's done. We've heard the phrase of a two-tier justice system, one for most of the people and one for the elites. Corporate executives are deceiving their own stockholders. Politicians are breaking all sorts of ethical codes. All of this to say the concept and practice of integrity is, again, an endangered species. Our culture is quite proficient at producing corrupt people because that's what sin produces. There are those who are skilled in lying and cheating and falsifying, stealing, distorting, covering up the truth. We live in a culture of of this kind, and we ask ourselves, what are we to do? It's not a trick question, what are we to do when we live in such a culture as this? And it can be answered quite easily. What God desires and and, and what we shall say requires is is for his people to pursue and practice personal and public holiness. We are to be a people who understand what integrity is and actually live our lives according to integrity. Why? Beloved, if believers will live such distinguished lives, lives of integrity, and I'll give you the definition for integrity in a little bit, but let me say integrity is doing the right thing all the time, regardless of who is looking or who is watching, and all to the glory of God. If we would live such distinguished lives of integrity, we will stand out as bright lights in a dark world. To put it in a phrase, if believers are to make a difference in this world, believers must have a difference in their lives. And so that's what this psalm is ultimately about. Psalm 101 is a beautiful psalm which describes for us, if I were to give it a title, the king's resolve to rule rightly. This is David's resolve to rule his kingdom correctly. As you note in our text, uh, in the title of this psalm, there is found a superscript that comes just before verse 1, and it simply tells us what? This is a psalm of David. That's in the original text. It's meant to inform us. And by this, we know that King David is the author. It is important because this gives us insight. If we understand that a king wrote this, it helps us understand the psalm itself. 
And Alexander McLaren described the likely setting for the psalm when he wrote this. David had but recently ascended the throne. The abuses and confusions of Saul's last troubled years had to be reformed. The new king felt that he was God's viceroy and here declares what he will strive to make his monarchy a copy of God's. David's intent is to emulate and imitate what he sees of God in and through his reign and his rule. This is an insightful psalm then. It describes things that are highly instructive for anyone, period, but specifically for anyone who would, who would justly govern other people. And you might be surprised at how many people actually are governing other people. Whether you are a parent, you're governing your children. If you are an employer, you're governing your employees. And then we have city councils and state legislatures. And we have, of course, our federal government. I know we wish that there would be those in our own government who would heed the words of this particular um, psalm. As we read through the life of David, we'll find that he was actually anointed king on three separate occasions. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we find Samuel anointing David when he was but a child, and the anointing serves more as a prophecy of what is to come. In 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, after Saul's death, David was anointed as king, but over the tribe of, of uh, Judah, and it was there in Hebron where that took place. And then seven years after that, according to 2 Kings 5, 3, David was anointed king over all the tribes of Israel. Before David took the throne of Israel, though, he had a lot of time, I believe, to think about what his kingdom would look like. He had seen all that Saul had done. He had seen all the excesses. He had seen all the, the anger and the rage of Saul, and he could evaluate and determine how would his kingdom be. James Montgomery Boyce said this of Psalm 101 and David's resolve, and this might actually encourage you that we won't be here that long. He said, I, I was startled to find that Martin Luther had done an exposition of Psalm uh, of this psalm that ran to 80 pages. Okay, I have five, so we're okay. The reason I discovered is that he was deeply concerned about, notice this, civil government and wanted to expound the psalm as a listing of qualities toward which every Christian, should say prince or magistrate, should strive. Can you imagine living in a culture where the theologian wants to tell the governing authorities, this is how you do it. You know what would happen if I ran up to, to uh, D.C. and said, guys, this is how you're supposed to do it? Um, well, I might get uh, arrested for insurrection. I'm not sure. Can you imagine? There was a time, though, when the heads of government at least feigned allegiance to God. They at least pretended to follow Christ, and there was an expectation that they ought to rule according at least some semblance to God's standard. This is exactly what David is expounding for us in this psalm. And so let's turn our attention to this psalm entitled, The King's Resolve to Rule Righteously. And we begin with our first point, and David understands something that I wish more people would get, and we, we've seen this played out in our culture a bit, but David first resolves uh, to live right in his personal conduct. David's resolve in his personal conduct. We, we were told many years ago that character mattered, right? Uh, we're, we're told that character matters, and so we were always told one candidate's character is flawed and the other one supposedly wasn't. I'll tell you, they're all flawed. They're all flawed, but the, the issue comes for us, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to make this statement, this is not in the notes, but, um, you know, as Christians, we are part of this culture. We've been given by God's providence this time to live in. You are citizens of the United States. You have a responsibility to in, uh, interact with government. You have a responsibility to vote. And when you vote, I will tell you this, as long as I've been able to vote, my first election, presidential election, was for the first George W. Bush when he became president. That was my, my first election that I could vote in. And uh, in that election, 
even though I was young, I recognized that ultimately as a Christian, I'm voting for the lesser of evils. I don't know that we will ever have someone who could stand up and cite all of the insights of this particular psalm and ever win a political office. And so we will always be voting the lesser of evils, and that's just the way it's going to be. But we still need to be involved. And so we recognize that if we could choose somebody to serve in government, we would want them not to just put some veneer of holiness and righteousness. We would desire for them to to resolve to live for God in their own everyday, private, personal lives. And that's what we see in this first point. David's resolve in personal conduct. It begins with, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. And we see David's desire to have a life governed by mercy and justice. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, it incorrectly reads this verse to say, I will sing of your loving kindness and justice. David doesn't, that's not in the Hebrew. It simply says, I will sing of the concepts of loving kindness and justice. Loving kindness is such a profound word. Some of you are quite familiar. It's probably what I would regard as the most pregnant word in all of Hebrew. It's translated a multitude of ways as loving kindness, as as steadfast love, of of loyalty, of mercy, of grace, of of, uh, uh, pity and compassion and and we translate it here I would prefer to translate it as mercy in this particular text probably one of the key ways it would be translated as mercy of that of not receiving that which we do deserve by way of punishment and so David establishes his personal resolve to be pure and committed to these two attributes that are best reflected, of course, in the person of Yahweh, of the Lord. And he says, I'm going to sing. It's going to be a part of who I am to sing of mercy and justice, and I will declare it to you, O Lord. While David certainly understood the Lord's character as being full of loving kindness, again, mercy and justice here, qualities that set God's rule as being distinctive, is because God is merciful and God is just at the same time that makes him totally unique among anyone else that we might ever know. And David says, I want my life to pattern that. I want to be like God. Now, we say it that way, that kind of rubs us the wrong way because that's what got Satan into trouble, right? But we could say it this way, I want to be like Christ. I want to be full of mercy and justice. I want to to have the compassion on people where they should have compassion. And I always want to do what is right before God and before others. And so David is saying, I recognize these things to be true of God, but I don't want them to only be true of God. I want them to be distinctive in my own life. This is how I will conduct myself. When people see me, they will say, he is merciful and he is just. He is gracious and loving, and he is righteous in what he does. And this is David's resolve. David's going on to to record that his resolve then is to emulate Yahweh's example. When he says to you, O Lord, I will sing praises, his point is that he desires for his rule to be one that serves as a praise to God. How do you praise God with the way that you live? David says, if I live by mercy and justice, if I seek to live under God's loving, uh, as an expression of God's loving kindness and his righteousness, then I will be a praise to God. Others may not understand it. Others may rile against it, as we even read in our Jude uh, uh, message. But this is his desire. It will be a praise to God, a rule that will now God will be glorified in. My life as an individual will bring praise to God, and then my rule will bring praise to God. This is describing then the ideal ruler. According to Romans chapter 13, some of you are familiar with it, it is clear that ruling people in the fear of God to the glory of God is actually the responsibility of every human ruler. 
So President Biden, what you need to pray for him is that he would rule according to the fear of God, to the glory of God. And some of you are chuckling because he's not doing that. But that is what he's called to do. And for that, we ought to pray for him and his administration and for Congress and for uh, for all those who are in authority. And so David understood this. And so we would pray that our government might understand this. And anyone who has any authority over any others, whether it be at home as a parent, in the church as an elder or as a pastor, in the form of civil government, you must understand that. We need to remind one another of these truths. Beloved, God's rule perfectly balances mercy and justice. Those things which sometimes to us seem to be in conflict, how do you let something go by and yet do what's right, God does perfectly. And God and David says, Lord, teach me to do this. As James Montgomery Boyce noted, he said, mercy and justice operate as checks on one another. Justice checks love that might otherwise be wrongly indulgent and therefore harmful. Love checks judgment that might otherwise be unduly harsh and therefore also harmful. Such are the qualities that make for a kind and just society. And Martin Luther, uh, in his commentary on this, said of this verse, What the psalm calls mercy and justice is said not of the mercy and justice of God, but of the mercy and justice which a prince practices towards his servants and his subjects. A prince and lord must use both of these. If there is only mercy and the prince lets everyone milk him and kick him in the teeth and does not punish or become angry, then not only the court but the land too will be filled with wicked rascals. I think we have some of those. All discipline and honor will come to an end. That's where we're at, is it? On the other hand, Luther continues, if there is only anger and punishment or too much of it, then tyranny will result, and the pious will be breathless in their daily fear and anxiety. This is where we find ourselves in so many ways. As king, though, David was concerned to unite mercy and justice, beginning in his own personal life. He cannot do it publicly if he cannot practice it privately. He knew these principles were not rooted in man, but in God. But before he could exercise mercy and justice in his kingdom, he had to understand, he had to extol the mercy and justice of God. Again, mercy, not giving to someone what they deserve by way of punishment. And justice, the doing what, of, what is right and required to maintain righteousness and peace. David was resolved to keep these things in balance. If I were simply to ask you the question, how are you doing in balancing mercy and justice? Of keeping that idea that some things you need to be able to say, I'm not going to bring that argument or that contention, that, that uh, punishment, that I'll show mercy, uh, yet on the other time proclaiming, demonstrating that you are seeking to do what is right. Today we see such things out of balance. We see district attorneys who will not press charges against people who have violently hurt others or destroyed public and personal property, supposing that mercy is okay for the such folks, while other prosecutors are throwing people in jail, holding them without bond for having intended a rally at the U.S. Capitol or having trespassed. Mercy and justice are not cooperating together in our current judicial climate. David was committed to balancing these things. Are you committed to balancing these things in your life? Let me just back up because what I just said, it bothers me what I just said from this standpoint. It's easy for us to point the fingers right now at our politicians. But the real question is not what our politicians are doing. It's what are you doing? How are you resolved to balance these two characteristics of God in your life? David's resolved to do that. Secondly, David's not only resolved to have a life governed by mercy and justice, but he's, he's resolved to have a life governed by the very presence of God. 
Now, what do I mean by the presence of God? He says, I will heed to the blameless way. When will you, Lord, come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. David resolves here was that the Lord would be connected to his desire to live a wise and holy life, what he refers to as the blameless way. He's determined that his reign would be marked with integrity and godliness. As David assumes his role and rule, it was imperative to him that the focus, his focus was not on what he's going to do for other people first. It's how he's going to conduct himself first. He wants personal godliness. He speaks of walking in the blameless way. Some translations have the perfect way. To me, that only represents walking in the way of Christ, who alone is perfect. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We, don't not, we not only cannot come to the Father except through him, we can't live rightly except through him. He is the perfect way. And too often, when a person assumes, uh, assumes the mantle of leadership, what happens? Something goes to their head so often. I have power. I can tell you what to do. I'm the boss. If I say jump, you say, how high? See, you're on it. Power can go to the head. And when such power goes to the head, it begins to expose the character flaws of that individual. The lesson this psalm paints is of a person who starts with himself. He seeks to bring his own character and his own conduct into conformity with the way and the will of the Lord to whom he offers his worship in verse 1. Ultimately, the way a person conducts himself in private will manifest itself in public. David desires to rightly live privately, knowing that this will enable him to rightly govern publicly. Unlike so many of our politicians who rise to position and power and prestige only to use it for personal gain, David seeks to begin his reign by committing to the blameless way. How about you? Are you resolved to the blameless way? What is God's desire for you? If you are here today and you've been chosen by God, we quote these verses so often, perhaps we forget the deep profoundness of them. For God chose us in Christ, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. That's God's resolve. And would you emulate that resolve? Would you say, Lord, I desire to be blameless? And what's keeping you from that blameless way in your personal life? Do you commit yourself to the blameless way, what we would call the way of holiness or the way of Christ? That's what David resolves. And having resolved to the blameless way, then David asks an interesting question, which commentators take a multitude of ways. He says, when will you come to me? It's kind of like an interruption, isn't it? It's like asking this question in the middle of this, of this statement. When will you come to me? Well, I'm going to take it this way, that David was aware of the fact that under the Old Testament covenant, Blessing included the experience of God's presence. If you were obedient to God, you experienced the presence and the power of God in your life. That's, you can see that if you want, want to read Deuteronomy 8, 8, uh, 28. Read Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you have the blessings and the cursings. And in Deuteronomy 28, if you will obey me, if you will do these things, if you will keep the way, then you will be blessed and you will have these blessings from the Lord and I will be your God and you, I will be in your presence. But if you go the other way, you will be, well, here's a word for you, cursed. Woe to you because then you will experience all of these negative things Things. And so David realizes that if he's going to experience the presence of God, it begins with his own obedience to God. Seeking to be obedient, then he interrupts his thinking to solicit divine help. I love what Spurgeon wrote on this. He said, David feels the need not merely of divine help, but also of the divine presence so that he may be instructed and sanctified and made fit for the discharge of his high vocation. David longed for a more special and effectual visitation from the Lord before he began his reign. Now, I don't know exactly how that's going to look like for you in your life, but here's what I do know by way of a precept. Before you would do anything, make sure that you've invited God to be in it. 
And if you can't invite God to be in it, don't do it in the first place. But if you would say, God, here's what I have before me. Here's the way that I, that I, I think I need to go. And I've tried to look at it with scripture, but now I need your help. I need your presence. I need your involvement. So let me do what I know to be true. Let me seek mercy and justice. And as I pursue what you've told me to do, those things that I don't quite yet understand, I know you will come to me. You will bring that. This concept of obedience to God and the experience of the presence of God is found in the New Covenant. So don't think, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. In 1 John verses 6 and 7, we read this. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus and yet walk in the darkness, if we are being disobedient, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light obediently, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You wanna, do you want to not be cleansed from all sin? Then walk in the darkness. You're living in sin. You're in the muck and the mire. And here we have this, this reminder that if we're going to uh, have, the, if God's going to come to us, we must walk in the light. And as we walk in the light, we are in the light. We have the presence of God with us. David makes finally a mention of how he will conduct himself in his own house. Again, before you can go out publicly and be of any uh, real use to the Lord, you have to begin in your own home. And David says that he will walk, he will behave within his house in the integrity of his heart. Again, David understands that how he thinks and lives in private plays out in how he will rule in his courts in his kingdom. Obviously, we know that David failed in this regard, sometimes grievously so, yet we always find David coming back to it. David would say, I resolve to do this your way, God. I want to follow you with all my heart. He would grievously fall and fail. He would repent and go right back to seeking that obedience again. To this point, Charles Spurgeon noted, reader, how fares it with your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? Are you a saint abroad and a devil at home? For shame. What we are at home, that we are indeed. Just think that last statement. What we are at home, that we are indeed. What needs to change in your resolve? Beloved, the hardest place to walk blamelessly is in the home. <laughs> your spouse, your children, they see everything, right? You can hide it from the pastor. You can hide it from those with whom you fellowship. You can hide it from those with whom you work with. But your family knows your weaknesses. We can temporarily walk in the blameless way among strangers, but those in our home they see our flaws and our sins. The way you live in your home is as blameless as you will ever truly be. No one ought to evaluate his blamelessness on the way the outside world thinks of him or says of him. Because ultimately that's not what matters. It is always easier for most to walk in the blameless way in the church or in the world than among their family. As one commentator put it, how many, uh, how many are as meek as lambs among others, but when at home they are wasps or tigers? The word for integrity that David uses here in our text may be defined this way. It is doing the right thing all the time with the right motive, regardless of who is or who, who is not watching. And I always add to the glory of God. Just because someone there, I mean, you know, we can ask this, uh, you know, what if your mother saw you do this? What if your God saw you do this? No, 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 no. God does see you do this. We, we speak of integrity and in, in this definition somewhat misleading because it's like, okay, doing the right thing regardless of who is or who is not watching. There's always someone watching. You know, there's always someone watching what you're doing on the Internet. 
And I don't mean just God. <laughs> there are others watching. Are you seeking to walk in your house with integrity, making sure that everything that you're seeking to do, every time that you do it, it is with the right and pure motive that you want it to honor God? David says, this is my resolve. This is my heart. To do the right thing all the time with the right motive, regardless of who was, who was not watching. Now, again, we can sit here and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. David messed up on this. You know, you can almost say, praise God, he messed up on this. Why would I say that? Because if he did it all perfectly, we'd just all be miserable wretches. And he wouldn't have included Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, by which he confesses sin and reminds us that there's a path back when we sin. David's imperfections are exposed to us so that we might recognize that even the man that was after God's own heart failed but always had a path back to the Lord. This is a life that would be governed in the presence of God. I know God is always watching. Well, there's an, another desire of, of David. He says he wants a life governed by avoiding evil. First uh, Thessalonians 5 reminds us, avoid even the appearance of evil, right? So a life governed by the avoiding of evil in verses 3 and 4. Maybe we'll move along. Notice what David says. I, I love this statement. This is something, uh, I, I'm not just going to throw it at the men, but I am going to say, men, put this right before you, right? Put this on your computer screen. Put this everywhere. You can put this in your bathroom mirror where it says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away, the apostates. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Well, how's that for a resolve? You want to live right before the Lord? There it is. That's serious business. David says, I will put no worthless, no wicked, no corrupt thing that would beset his own eyes. David knew something that many have failed to learn in practice, that the measure of a righteous life is determined in part by what one chooses to set his eyes upon. There are many worthless things we can set our eyes upon. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, we're reminded that our eyes are lustful. Don't forget your eyes are lustful. You say, well, wait a minute. I, I don't lust after this particular thing. You, your, your eyes will lust after something. It may lust after the flesh. It may lust after power. You, you see things and you want it. The lust of the eyes, John writes, plays a significant role in putting this lure upon us, tempting us away. And David's resolve to be careful uh, is to be careful of what he actually sees. What am I going to put my eyes on? And his words, I believe, are reminiscent of Job, who wrote in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then shall I gaze at a virgin? He does not want to be distracted. Again, he would fail. And there's no justification for his failure. But that doesn't mean the covenant and the desire and the resolve ought to be ours. Like Job, David considered discipline over his eyes as a primary measure of godliness. What I look at is a measurement of my godliness. Alexander McLaren again said of this, the recesses of an eastern palace were often foul with lust and hit extravagances of caprice and self-indulgence. But this ruler, David, will behave there as one who has Jehovah for his guest. He knows the presence of God is with him, and therefore, in part, this is his motivation, I will avoid evil. We would do well to remember as Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, that we take God with us everywhere we go. Whatever movie you go to see, Whatever music you're going to listen to, whatever books you read, whatever you do set your eyes upon, the Lord is there and sees it all. 
He sees what we see, and he knows what we know, and he knows what we think. To be sure, we might have wished that David had sought to live this out, this principle out more consistently. Rather, his resolve would wane as he took to himself multiple wives, as we read in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and chapter 5, and seemed at times unable to restrain his own sexual desires. By the lust of the eyes, David was led astray, was he not? An interesting account with regard to his gaze at Bathsheba. We may comment, he, he looked upon Bathsheba bathing and he turned away. He did the right thing the first time. The text says he beheld her and he turned away. That was right. But then the text goes on to say he took a second look and he set his eyes upon that which he desired, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. And that's what led to his downfall. So then, what do we do with David? A man whose initial resolve was spot on and yet became seemingly a hypocrite, failing to fully live up to his high standards. Notice I use the word seemingly a hypocrite. We, do, we don't define or use this word correctly. The world certainly doesn't use this word correctly. Let me tell you something that you need to, to note for yourself and then use this when other people start, start, start talking to you about being a hypocrite. How many of you have been called a hypocrite before? Only me. Wow. Gosh. Well, somebody come up here and teach. because <laughs> It is not hypocrisy to set a standard that you cannot reach. It is not hypocrisy to set a standard that you cannot reach. What is the standard that we ought to be setting right now? To be like Christ. I cannot reach that. Not in this fallen flesh. Not of myself. It is not hypocrisy to set a standard that one cannot reach. Hypocrisy, beloved, is realized when one has one standard for himself and another standard for others. So you want to make sure that if somebody says, well, you're a hypocrite because you don't live up to the standard you set, you say, yes, you're right. By the grace of God, I'm doing all that I can to live to the perfection of Christ. I don't know who can do that on this side of glory, but that's the standard. And I do fail, and God's made a way of repentance for me, and I'm calling you to repentance. But what is hypocrisy is when you live at one level and you say, you want somebody else to live at a higher level. That's true hypocrisy. And so his standard to include now, he says, I want to hate the work, uh, the work of those who fall away. David realizes that in order to live this godly, blameless life, he would need to be wise and keep his distance from those who he sees are not walking with God, not following God. He actually says these have a perverse heart. David was seeking to live by uh, the principle that would be later stated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.33, one that we all need to live by, but I, I always like to point this out to our, our youth when he says this, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. You cannot be in the wrong crowd and seek to maintain your standards. They will bring you down every time. So what does David mean when he speaks of those who fall away? This is the opposite. Those who fall away, is, it's the opposite of the word mercy or loving kindness back in verse 1. Those who fall away are not merciful and they are not righteous. David vows that the work of such ones shall not fasten its grip on me, shall not cling to me. For many years, my wife and I would go out and we'd pick out a Christmas tree. Right? I mean, a living Christmas tree, that's got to be the greatest thing. You get that nice tree. It smells wonderful. They wrap it all up for you. You put it on your car that's too small to hold the big tree that you have, and you get it to the house. And what do I have to do? Every year I did this, and I don't know why this bothered me. I was too dumb to wear gloves. I'd get that tree out, and I'd have to cut the end off and set it up. And what got all over my hands? Sap. 
smelled okay, but it's sticky, and you know, it's like you get it on one finger, and then you do this, and it's on all of your fingers, and somehow you got it to your cheek, and it's on your, it's everywhere, and it sticks, and you can't get it off. That is what the picture is here. David says, I don't want to be around people whose sin is going to stick to me and grip to me, and I can't get it off, and you can sit there with that sap, and you're like rubbing for days trying to get this stuff off. Unless you're smart and, well, I don't know if it's smart, you use gasoline or something and just burn all the skin off and it comes off. But this is the idea. David is vowing that he will avoid sin so that it won't stick to him. And I think this is such an important lesson for us. Some of us think, no, I'm going to go through the sin and hope it doesn't stick to me. No, it doesn't work that way. Try to handle a tree, a Christmas tree, without getting sap on you. That's what it's like trying to handle sin. So what does David say? I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to stay as far away from it as I can. David vows that he would know no evil. To live the blameless way that he speaks of, one must practice what we would say is utter determination. I am determined to, not, uh, to know no evil. Now, the, I will know evil. And then I have to go to 1 John 1, 9 and confess it to God, and he will forgive me. And then I have to determine once again to do what? No, no evil. You have to get up every morning and say, God, help me this day to know no evil. You may need to repeat that prayer an hour later or 20 times through the day. But you must be determined if you would live properly and righteously before God. David was not always determined as he ought to have been. We can say, however, that his life appears to have been far more godly when he was determined to be so than when he was not. Does that make sense? If you're not determined to be godly, what's going to happen? You're not going to be godly. So if you're not determined to be godly this morning, I can promise you this one thing. You won't be godly. You must be determined. Again, the perverse heart that he speaks of speaks of an intentional, uh, uh, heart, uh, d intentional act. It is the heart that seeks to hate the truth and the straight path. A perverse heart hates the truth and the straight path. The word can speak of something being crooked. The word perverse is crooked. The word translated perverse was used to speak of an unruly horse. In the words of Spurgeon, he says, an unruly horse, that one that champs upon the bit through its fiery impatience, and when applied to a bad man, denotes the one impatient of all restraint, of unbridled passion, and that is, he and that is headstrong and ungovernable in the grat gratification of them, trampling on all the obligations of religion and virtue. That perverse heart just says, I'll have nothing to do. You can't, you can't have me think or do anything else. Well, this is David's resolve for his private conduct. In verses 5 through 8, we see that he moves from his private conduct to now his public commitments. Beginning in verse 5, we see his public commitments. And we begin with this first point. He's going to seek a cabinet, a group of people who are opposed to the workers of evil. Look at verse 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart I will endure. I don't want to have these kinds of people surrounding me. Again, bad uh, company corrupts good morals. To slander means to speak falsely against or to lie about a person. It is a sin, and sometimes it may be done to a person's face, but here in the text it says it's done how? Secretly. The intent of such slander is to better oneself in some way, to present yourself in a better light or, or to put the other person down just so that you look better. The use of the word neighbor implies someone that is known. This is someone who's close to you, someone who would be in the court of the king. And David resolves that such slanderers will not be found in his court. In fact, he says they will be what? Destroyed. The word really means to be cut off. We could say, uh, I don't know why I did this. I am part Italian, and I just thought of the mafia. We're just going to make them disappear. Okay, They're just going to be gone. That's the idea here. They're just going to be disappear. They're just going to be made to disappear so they cannot be heard. 
The problem of slander is that it hurts everyone who hears it. What do I mean by that? First, it hurts the one who is slandered, right? The one against whom the slander is directed. You're saying something false. You're saying something untrue. That hurts. Second, it hurts the, uh, hurt, it hurts the one uh, to whom the slander is communicated because they're being lied to. They're being told misinformation. They're being manipulated to have their opinion be changed of that other person. So it hurts them. But here's something that slanderers don't often think about. It thirdly hurts the slanderer himself because it is a sin and it invites the judgment of God. Every slanderer then imposes three deadly wounds to the one he slanders, to the one he communicates the slander, and to himself. And David says, the people I surround myself with will not be like that. They will be silenced. But in addition, David says, uh, has this other resolve. He says, no one who has a haughty look in an arrogant heart. David lists two sins that I think are related to that of slander. And the first, if you notice it, is the communication of arrogance by facial expression. It is this haughty look. It's not actually what's said. It's just what's communicated in the facial expression. And then it is the arrogant heart that is the very motivation behind that expression. What you feel on the inside can be manifested in just your very body language. Anyone who thought more highly of himself than their neighbors, David said, he would not endure. I will not put up with, I will not tolerate as, as my cabinet those who live this way. Let us be careful then of the company we keep. And let us be careful of what we tolerate within that company. So David is uh, would be opposed to such wicked people in his cabinet. Uh, the second thing is the cabinet that David would choose is described for us in verses 6 through uh, 8. He says, My eye shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all who do iniquity. David's resolve to keep his eyes now, what is he going to keep his eyes on? Not worthless things, but faithful ones. He's looking to other people who are the faithful. Who are the faithful? These are those who are opposed to wickedness. These are those determined to be faithful, those who are walking in a blameless way, according to the ways of God. He says, those that I see living that way, they're going to dwell with me. I'm going to hang out with them. As David sought those who would lead with him, he sought, as it says, the faithful of the land. I like what James Montgomery Boyce said here. He said, we need people who can get the job done. He didn't stop, though. We'd all agree with that, right? We need people who can get the job done, but we need the faithful of the land to do it. It is a wise leader who seeks out such people and then puts authority into their hands. Those who are faithful, you turn them loose and you let them, you let them uh, accomplish their purposes. Boyce would go on to say, is it not true that Jesus, like David, has his eyes alert for the faithful in the land, for those who will serve now and also dwell with him in glory at the end of time. The Lord Jesus is looking for the faithful of the land, and so what becomes the question? Lord, am I faithful? Are you looking, are you looking for those who are faithful? Are you looking for those who can come alongside of you and realizing that you will dwell with them for eternity and they are the ones that can encourage you in the way that you should go? David resolves that it would be the faithful that minister to him, who, who serve him. As David is assuming the throne, he vowed that to find the right people to appoint to his government and they would be those uh, uh, he would reject the ones who practice deceit in verse 7 and who speak falsehood. Rather, David is looking for those who are humble, not proud, realizing that he's able to trust such ones as these with uh, authority and responsibility. And verse 8 ends kind of interesting. It says this, David says, 
uh, resolves, every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land. How would you like that as your motivation every morning? Okay, God, I'm going to take out my sword, right? I think David's desire to govern in such a way, what this communicating, he desired to govern in such a way as to favor the godly and oppose the wicked. The idea of every morning could have one of two uh, uh, meanings. It could mean that every morning he would renew this commitment, or it could be translated as early, simply early, meaning that this is the first or earliest of his actions, that he wants to, at the beginning of his reign, cut off and make silent the wicked as he sought to rule what he refers to as the city of the Lord. He did not want to to sow the seeds of destruction in his new rule and reign. His resolve was that the wicked would not prosper in his administration. So the idea, again, of cutting them off every day if needs be, but I'm going to start with this resolve, let them not be part of this administration. Alexander McLaren wrote, and we'll end with this, David's ambition is to have Jehovah's city worthy of, of its true king when he shall deign to come and dwell in it. And I think about that statement. I think so ought to be true of every one of us who say we love Jesus. He's coming again. And when he comes, uh, and and, and we are, the the kingdom of, of heaven is in our hearts, what will he see? What will he find? Will we be the faithful of the land? Will he find us to have been faithful when he returns? Or will we be like those that the uh, Apostle John in 1 John 2 says, do not be those who shrink away in shame at his coming. I don't want to shrink away in shame. I want to have the resolves of David. I want to rule my life righteously, privately and publicly. And I pray that that would be your desire as well. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this psalm and we thank you for the resolves of this man who is said to be a man after your own heart. I pray, Father God, that it would be said of each one of us that we are people who are after your own heart, that we desire to dwell with you, but we know that means we need to be faithful, faithful to your word, faithful to what you've called us. That does not mean that we will be without sin, but we thank you it means to be faithful to the remedy for sin, to confess it and to to renounce it and to repent. Father, I pray that you would bring to each one of our hearts the same resolves as that of David, that we would live lives in the blameless way and walk in our own homes with integrity and then allow those godly principles of mercy and justice to not only be lived out in our private lives but in our public lives that people may then see the mercy and the justice of you, our God, and bow the knee to Jesus Christ, this Lord and Savior. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.